Since it's been a while, I wanted to begin reading in chapter 3. Uh, yeah, chapter 3. I'm going to read from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 24. From chapter 23, um, beginning at verse 29, and then I'm going to read through chapter 24, verse 8. So Matthew 23, beginning at verse 29 through 24, verse 8. Once again, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up. Then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom he murdered between the temple and the altar. Surely I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be uh, famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. O Lord God in heaven, we do praise You and thank You that You are a good and gracious God. And we praise You and thank You that You have not left us in the dark that You have revealed Yourself to us through Your creation, that You have especially revealed Yourself through Your Word. 
and that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life so that we might know who you are, that we might know better who we are and why we're here and what you've called us to do. And so we thank you for your word and we pray that as we come to this particular passage and begin this a section of your word, we ask, Father, that you would truly give us understanding and insight that your Spirit would lead us and guide us, and that as your Word goes forth in the, power, uh, in the power of the Spirit, we pray that it would truly find within our hearts that rich, fertile soil that brings about great and abundant fruit for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we come to the the sixth and the final discourse of Jesus that uh, Matthew records for us in his gospel account. These uh, extended sections of Jesus' teaching, of course, began with uh, the Sermon on the Mount back in uh, Matthew chapter 5, and now they end with what's called the Olivet Discourse. And this discourse, though, is, is challenging to understand <laughs> Because it speaks of coming judgment and the warning signs leading up to that judgment. Now, though the key theme of judgment is pretty straightforward, the difficulty comes in understanding when this judgment will come and upon whom will it come. And as we'll see, there are a variety of perspectives and many faithful commentators and theologians have come down on different sides of the issue. And so before we consider the occasion of this discourse and the first warnings that Jesus gives, I want to spend a little time considering some of these interpretive issues. Now the big question that leads to difficulty is what is Jesus predicting here? Or put another way, since we know judgment is, is again being predicted, what's the timing of when this judgment will come? Well, there are generally three views uh, in approach to this question. The first is to understand this discourse and Jesus' words here as speaking of mostly near future events. That is, things that would come to pass in the, the span of the current generation to whom Jesus is speaking. So, within the next 40 years. Those who advocate this view would say then that most of what Jesus is predicting has to do with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Romans in 70 AD. And so they would uh, emphasize the language of urgency that Jesus uses, the the sense that, that judgment is coming soon. And even as Jesus warns in verse 34 that it will come before this generation passes away. Now, the exception that most of this approach, from this approach, would see, uh, that they would see that something that would be beyond 70 AD, would be the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though, of course, some would, would argue that the events of 70 AD was a coming of Jesus uh, in judgment, but it wasn't the coming at the end of the age. Now, within this view, there are certainly extremists. And they would say that even the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ was in 70 AD or uh, sometime right before 70 AD. 
And this unorthodox view uh, is called a fool or, or hyperpreterism. And it would claim that prophecy, that all biblical prophecy, including the Olivet Discourse and even the events of the book of Revelation, have already happened. And that Jesus has already turned and has established his kingdom. We may wonder if that were the case. We may wonder, well, why are we still here? And why are we still dealing with the effects of sin and misery in this fallen world? See, it totally undermines the hope and the assurance that we find in the promises of God's word. And so this full preterism is to be rejected. Well, a second approach is to view the events as being mostly far in the future. That is, the events that Jesus is predicting have to do with the end times, just before Christ returns at the end of the age. And this view also tends to focus all these events as speaking about God's primarily dealing with Israel and really has very little to do with the church. Now, advocates of this view would argue that maybe there's a small portion of the prophecy here that would deal with the events of 70 AD, but everything else points to the end of the age at a time after the Jews have rebuilt the temple. Now, this perspective is is common among dispensationalists and has largely been popularized by the Left Behind series of, of books and movies. Well, not only does this view come across as rather disjointed as it overlooks uh, the importance of historical events that have already taken place, but like the full preterist view, it actually offers very little hope and encouragement to Jesus' disciples who first heard it, and even for us today in the church. For this, and then for certainly a variety of other reasons related to, or unrelated to prophecy, uh, dispensationalism should be rejected. But there's a third approach that fits better with the text and the context and preserves the very real message that Jesus had for his disciples for the early church and even for us today. And this third view is somewhat of a hybrid of the other two. That is, Jesus is clearly predicting events that will happen in both 70 AD and also he's making predictions about things that will happen at the end of the age as well as things that will happen in the time in between. In fact, it seems as, uh, that as Jesus presents it here, the two events, 70 AD and the, uh, the end of the age, are related. The events of 70 AD are, are really a precursor to or a picture of what will happen at the end times. Now the key as we try to understand this, is to untangle what Jesus says here and to see that some events focus primarily on 70 AD. Some are focused on 70 AD but have a view toward the end, while others are focused primarily on the end of the age. Now this becomes a bit clearer when we understand that Jesus is using something called prophetic foreshortening. 
Prophetic foreshortening is where events in the distant future and those in the near future are spoken of as if they were close together. And so uh, one of the illustrations that's commonly used to, uh, to explain this is that if you, if you picture two tall peaks uh, in a mountain range, right? you're, you're driving uh, along and you're heading toward the, the Rocky Mountains and you just see the, the, the mountain range and you see all these high peaks. Well, from a distance, those high peaks seem close together. In fact, they may even appear to be part of the same mountain. But of course, the closer you get, you begin to understand a little bit more of the the distance, and you realize that these peaks are actually miles apart. And so applied to prophecy, well again, it may appear as though two prophetic events are close together, or even one and the same, but as you get closer in time, you see that they're actually different events that are far apart. An Old Testament example of this would be Isaiah chapter 11, where the prophet Isaiah 1, or uh, in verse 1, it says, A rod from the stem of Jesse, a branch, shall grow. And of course, we should be familiar to us. This is a prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Incarnation. But then, just three verses later, in verse 4, the prophet goes on, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Well, this refers to Christ's coming in judgment at the end of the age. And so reading this passage, uh, at least on the surface, you might think that all this is going to happen within the same time period, that the Messiah is going to come and He's going to judge the earth. But as we've seen over time, there's already been 2,000 years between the Incarnation and the end of the world. And so it's the same technique that Jesus is employing here. Speaking of events, uh, speaking of events in 70 a day, as well as speaking of events at the end of the age. And so we try to tease these out so we can understand what he is saying here. But another important question we should address is, how does this passage apply to us? And what does it mean for us today? Well, we know that, as with all Scripture, God was seeking to instruct, encourage, correct, and and warn not only those who first heard or read these words, but they're also for His people of all ages. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this in Romans 15, and he says, "...for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope." And so this hybrid approach helps us to not only learn, but really, again, brings us comfort, hope, and assurance. The events were predicted at a certain point in history. They were then written down and they were recorded at another point in history, and yet they're to be profitable for God's people throughout all of history. And so aside from the realization of the anticipate or the anticipation of the fulfillment of these prophecies, there are some very practical lessons, warnings, and comforts for Christians in any age, and hopefully we'll be able to uh, see some of these as we study this discourse over the next several weeks. Well, how did this discourse come about? 
what led up to the questions the disciples ask in verse 3, and then the long answer that Jesus gives through the rest of chapter 24 and 25. Well, it all relates to a focus on the temple. And this focus on the temple has been there since chapter 21, when Jesus uh, entered into Jerusalem during the triumphal entry and made his way to the temple. And then, of course, shortly after that triumphal entry was the cleansing of the temple, which uh, was either on that same uh, Sunday afternoon or maybe it was sometime on Monday. And that cleansing of the temple was a clear judgment on the corruptions that had been allowed in the temple, where God's house of prayer had become and been made a den of thieves. Well, then the next morning was the cursing of the fig tree. And this also was a picture of the fruitless religion of the Jews and the empty vain worship that they offered to God in the temple. And then after that begins the long series of questions and attacks against Jesus by the Jewish religious leaders as Jesus taught in the temple. And again, this was likely on now Tuesday of that final week of Jesus' uh, earthly life. And then, of course, after rebuffing their questions and turning them back and silencing them, uh, Jesus uh, then challenged them with several parables. And now in chapter 20, then in chapter 23, we see and we read uh, some of that. Jesus boldly and severely condemns the scribes and the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, for their corruption, and for their shallow religion. And he ends this condemnation with an implied judgment on the Jews, on their religion, and the temple itself. In 23 verse 38, he says, See, your house is left to you desolate. An empty house. A house that has been destroyed. Well, the temple remains the focus even as we begin chapter 24. As Matthew is very deliberate to note here in verse 1, that Jesus now went out and departed from the temple. Now Jesus leaving the temple, this simple action, Jesus leaving the temple is a dramatic picture of looming judgment to come. You see, from this point on, there's no further mention of Jesus being back in the temple. And interestingly, he goes across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, which is directly across from the temple. Now, you may wonder, well, why is that important? And again, these are little details that remind us of how closely our Lord Jesus sought to fulfill every uh, precept of God's Word, every prophecy to be fulfilled. Uh, and this is, again, an example of that. In another example of prophetic foreshortening in the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel speaking way before, well, uh, before the, the Babylonians would come and, and destroy Jerusalem in 586 B.C., Ezekiel declares in chapter 10, verse 18, seeing in a vision, Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And then later describing the same scene in, in chapter 11, verse 23, he says, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is east of the city. 
And so here in this, uh, this passage in, in Ezekiel, we see the glory of the Lord, the, the cloud that, that symbolized God's presence in the midst of His people, departing from the temple and resting on the mountain to the east. Well, what is that mountain to the east? It was the Mount of Olives. For Ezekiel, this vision prefigured the judgment to come upon the nation of Judah because of their idolatry and and because of their their wickedness. The destruction of the city and, and the temple by the Babylonians. But even this event points toward the incarnate glory of the Lord. Jesus Christ, the Son of God departing the temple and the city as a precursor to the judgment that will soon come at the hands of the Romans. Jesus left the temple and He went to the same mountain where the glory cloud of the Lord had rested in Ezekiel's time. And so Jesus was well aware of the significance of His actions. But His disciples, well, they clearly weren't aware You see, as they're departing the temple, the disciples comment about the beauty of the temple. Now, their comments seem uh, somewhat out of place, especially considering Jesus' strong words back in in verse 38 of uh, chapter 23. And perhaps they were thinking, well, maybe He was talking about something else, some other house that was going to be left desolate. But Jesus makes it plainly clear in His response in verse 2. Assuredly, truly, truly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus is speaking of complete and total destruction. The Jewish historian Josephus, who was an an eyewitness to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, notes that the city was so completely raised to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot no reason to believe that it had ever been inhabited. And so Jesus is telling the disciples that this beautiful building was going to be totally and completely destroyed. Not one stone left upon another. Imagine how stunned the disciples were. You see, because for the Jews... The temple was the center of their religious activity. And and here Jesus is saying that it's going to be completely destroyed. There's not going to be anything left. And these words would have truly weighed heavily on the disciples as they make this long walk down into the valley and across the river and then up to an area on the Mount of Olives directly across from where they can see this beautiful structure. Once there, the disciples finally break the silence And they pose their questions in verse 3. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now note here, there are two key questions that they're asking. When will these things be? That is, when will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign? will be the sign of your coming in judgment and of the end of the age. Now, there are two things that we can glean from these questions. First, it appears as though the disciples have linked the destruction of the temple to the end of the world and Christ's return. 
And certainly so central was the temple to Jewish life, we can see why they may have thought this. But as Jesus will show them, this isn't the case at all. The destruction of the temple and the city and his coming at the end of the age are two different events. Though we noted before, they're somewhat related. But secondly, the disciples not only wanted to know when these things will be, but they also want to know the signs. What are the signs that will be given beforehand that will tell them that the destruction is near? Now this is interesting because earlier in in Matthew 12, verse 39, Jesus warned that it was an evil and unfaithful generation that sought out your signs. And here His own disciples are looking for signs. But instead of a harsh rebuke, Jesus will soon charge them to not get caught up in sign searching or sign reading, but to focus on the mission that He has been, that has been and will be given to them. Now Jesus' response to these two questions is again what makes up the body of the Olivet Discourse. But he won't answer the questions directly. That is, he's not going to say to them, well, you know, it's going to happen in the summer of 70 AD, so you better mark that down on your calendars and so you know what will be coming. No, he's mostly just going to give generalities with only a very few uh, specifics. You see, as the Son of God, Jesus knows human nature. He knows that too many specifics would be disastrous. Now, not only would they be misinterpreted and argued about, but again, it would turn away the focus from the greater mission that he would be calling them to do. And so Jesus begins his response with a warning about signs. He warns them about the arrival of of false Christs or Messiahs who may bring false signs. Verse 4, take heed or watch out that no one deceives you. Saying, be on guard against those who might come and mislead you, that is, cause you to wander from the truth. See, signs, signs can be misleading. And people who focus on signs can be deceptive. And so beware of people who are always talking about the signs of the times and who uh, always are, some people are are obsessed with eschatology and the, the things of the end and they're always looking for signs and this is a sign of that and that's a sign of this. They try to make predictions based on what they hear on the news or read on social media. And then they try to impose that on the Bible. It doesn't work that way. Again, this is why most of the signs Jesus will give will be general signs. General signs that can't be taken individually as signs of what's to come. But love the God, we must be very wary of sign seekers and sign interpreters because they will lead you astray. And leading the way in this deception will be false Christs, false messiahs, false teachers and prophets who will come, claim the name of Christ, and they will deceive many. And when Jesus warns that these will come in my name, he's warning that they will often come from within the church. 
And indeed they did. The apostles throughout the rest of the New Testament repeatedly warned the early church of these kinds of deceivers. For example, in 1 John 2, uh, John uh, writing says, Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest, that none of them were of us. So even within the church, they'll be coming these, these false teachers, false prophets, obsessed with signs, seeking to lead people astray. They'll come and they'll, they'll claim to be the Christ, even claiming some boldly claiming to be Jesus Himself and the Son of God. They'll make these bold claims. They'll point to various signs. They'll look at current events as evidence of the fulfillment of these signs. But their plot is to deceive and gain control for their own purposes. And so these false Christs will come. And again, this is why the hybrid view of interpretation in a lot of ways makes sense. You see, because there were many such false teachers before 70 A.D. And Josephus even mentions some other false prophets and those who claim to be the Messiah. But then even after... 70 AD. Such evil men and women have continued to come forth out of the church. And they do so even today, and they will continue to come until the end of the age. Today, false prophets and teachers lead people astray. Again, some claiming the name of Christ, but teaching things that Christ never taught. They twist the scriptures and they manipulate the people for their own personal gain. These will only intensify as we draw closer to the end of the age. And sadly, many, many people will be deceived by them and will be led astray. And so be on guard and watch out and truly test every teaching in the light of Scripture to see if it's true. Well, after this warning, Jesus goes on to give other general signs including political upheaval and natural disasters. He says there will be wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise up against nation. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Jesus warns in verse 6, He says, Don't be troubled when you see these things. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. And so just because you hear of a war... Or an earthquake somewhere. It doesn't mean it's all coming to an end. These are general signs that remind us that we live in a fallen and sinful world and that even the creation itself groans under the curse and the burden of sin. These signs don't mean the end has come. But they do remind us that the end is coming. And brothers and sisters, that's how we must understand them. Now for the disciples, they'd experience many of these things in their lifetimes. Indeed, there would be many turbulent times in a disruption of the Pax Romana, right, the great peace of the Roman Empire that lasted for quite a while. Hundreds of years. But during the lifetime of the disciples, there'd be a revolt, a near revolt of the Jews in 40 A.D., 
so just shortly, a few years after Jesus' death, as the emperor Caligula wanted to put a statue in, in the temple. There was also a zealot revolt in 66 AD, which eventually led to Jerusalem's destruction in 70 AD. And then after Nero's death in 68, there were numerous civil wars, as four different emperors would rise to power in the span of one year. And so there would be much upheaval. But there were also famines and other natural disasters. Think of Agabus, who was a a prophet in the early church. He warned of a famine coming upon the world in in Acts chapter 11, verse 28. And of course, we have the Apostle Paul going around, visiting different churches, taking up a collection for the Jerusalem church because of a famine that was in that region. And there were earthquakes in 61 and 63 A.D. And of course, after 70 A.D., all these signs continued. And they have continued all through 2,000 years of history up to the present day. And what do we see around us today? We see wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, destructive hurricanes, even uh, pestilence and plagues. But the end isn't here yet. So again, these aren't signs that the end is imminent. But they are signs that should tell us that the end is drawing near. As Jesus makes clear, these things must happen, but the end is not yet. In fact, Jesus says in verse 8, making his point even stronger, not only is the end not yet, but all these signs are just the beginning. Of sorrows, or more literally, the beginning of birth pains. Now, sorrows and birth pains are an apt picture of these events and how we should understand them. Now, if you're a mother and have experienced going through labor, you know that those first contractions, though they're painful and intense, they don't mean much other than things are starting. Indeed, it's a sign that the end, or in this case, the birth of a child is coming, but the time is not yet. It could still take a long time. And because of this, well, husbands should be there encouraging their wives and doing their Lamaze instruction and helping their wives to to breathe easier so that they don't wear themselves out at the beginning. Because again, the labor could last quite some time. Well, here Jesus is being in the birth coach for the disciples and indeed for believers throughout history, even us here today. And his point is this. Look, don't get all worked up when you see these things happening. Right? Don't, don't breathe so fast and hyperventilate with anxiety that you exhaust yourself and you, you pass out. See, these things must happen. False prophets claiming to come in the name of Jesus. Wars, rumors of wars, famines and earthquakes. All these things must happen and will continue to happen. And as terrible as one event or a disaster may seem, we can't isolate these events and then make an infallible prediction that the end is here. But the problem is, and Jesus knew this because again, He knows human nature, 
There's people do this all the time. Right? Something catastrophic happens and the signs come out. Well, the end is near. And people, even unfortunately many Christians, they'll retreat to the hills and they'll, they'll hide out in their bunkers. I had a, remember many years ago, some of you remember, you know, Y2K and all the disaster that that was supposed to bring. And, and a lot of Christians retreated. But what about the Great Commission? What about serving others in need? Many are led astray as they wander away from the mission that Jesus has given his church. And this is exactly what Jesus is telling the disciples not to do. Don't get so caught up in these signs. Look, they're going to happen. We need to know that they're going to happen. We need to understand what's happening when we see them. But we ought not to run around frantic, giving up on the mission which Christ has called us to do. So what do we glean from all this? Well, first, we must be alert. Brothers and sisters, this is Jesus' warning not only to the disciples and his contemporary generation, but to all Christians, even those gathered together here. We need to watch out. We need to be on alert. Jesus said back in Matthew 10, Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We need to know what's going on around us. But we ought not to panic. We need to recognize that when you see these things, the end is drawing closer. But the end is not yet here. And we'll see uh, later in this discourse that when the end does come, it will be unmistakable. Not only will we know it, but the whole world will know it. So let us not panic when we see these disruptions going on in the world around us. We should also stand firm in, your, in our faith. Right? Don't be misled by false signs or false teachers. That, again, God has been gracious to us. And then He has given to us His inspired infallible Word. And so if someone says something that you're not sure of, well, don't take their word for it, even though they may have a certain title or position. Position. But study the Word of God, just as the Pereans did, and to see if these things are true. Don't be so easily misled, but stand firm. But I will say this, if you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, know that you will be misled, and you will be swept away like a house built upon the sand with no solid foundation. Because you can only stand firm if you've humbled yourself, if you've repented of your sins and believed on Christ alone for salvation, because He is the firm foundation. He is the solid rock upon which the gospel calls you to stand. So stand firm. And then finally, stay focused. Again, we'll see this elaborated on uh, later as we go through this discourse. But Jesus Christ has given His church a mission. And it's a mission that we are to carry out to the end of the age. As He says, He will be with us to the end of the age. We are to go and to make disciples. We are to spread the gospel. And so you mustn't let worry and concern about any current event or natural disaster get in the way of this mission. In fact... 
as Jesus will soon point out, these events will be opportunities for the gospel to go forth. And so to this then, let's truly be faithful to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks for your word and your instruction. And even in this passage, as we begin this discourse, and it is challenging, and yet we pray that you would give us the wisdom to see what is here, what we can glean, to be warned, that we might be alert to the things going on around us, that we might be able to stand firm in our faith, and that we would stay focused on the mission which you have called us to accomplish as your people. Father, there is much going on in the world around us today. And there is a sense where we are moving even quickly toward the end. But maybe the end isn't for another 10, 20, 100 years or 1,000 years. And so we pray that we would not get caught up in the signs, but that we would stay focused to be faithful to serve you and to glorify you. And if the end would come, and there are times when we do pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We anticipate your return, but we're also mindful that you've placed us here for a reason and a purpose. So we ask even for your blessing upon this congregation of your people, That we would be a faithful light, a beacon of hope in this community. To share the gospel, to proclaim your truth, to stand firm in the midst of these turbulent times. We pray that we would be able to accomplish these things for your glory, for your praise, and for your honor. Because you alone are the one true living God. And so we ask, Lord, that you would truly uh, apply these truths to our hearts by your Spirit drawing us all closer to Yourself. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.